Hello, my rebels. Today, Justin Trudeau takes a stand in the Trucker Commission. Very interesting. It's rare that he's under oath. It's rarer still when he answers a straight question. I'll show you a bunch of clips from today's ongoing proceedings. But first, let me invite you to become a subscriber to Rebel News Plus. It's the video version of this podcast. I'd like you to see the video version. I want you to see some documents. I want you to see some people, some video clips. Just go to rebelnewsplus.com, click subscribe. I know it's eight bucks a month, but you know, that's half the price of Netflix. You get so much unique stuff you won't get anywhere else. And you know what? We rely on that eight bucks a month. I know that sounds sort of laughable, but you add up all the people subscribing and that's how we meet our payroll here. And we don't get money from Trudeau and we don't get corporate money and we don't get YouTube money. They demonetize us. We really rely on you. So please go to rebelnewsplus.com. All right, here's today's show. Tonight, Justin Trudeau takes a stand in the Trucker Commission. It's November 25th, and this is the Ezra Levant Show. Another criticism that is leveled is that while the protests may have gotten, can we say, out of hand or snowballed and been extremely disruptive, they weren't the the actions of a small minority, but a, a real expression of frustration, a legitimate frustration on behalf of a significant number of Canadians who had been through, uh, either suffered from or felt aggrieved by years of public health measures. And um, in response to that, they wanted to engage and they wanted you to speak to them and they wanted to hear directly from their federal government and that did not happen. So do you have an answer to that? Um, I think first of all, We heard them. We knew exactly what they were asking for. They were very, very clear that they wanted an end uh, to mandates. Uh, the convoy protesters uh, were, were expressing their disagreement with very specific uh, public policies, that they were very vocal, both um, in um, mainstream communications and uh, through social media on uh, what they wanted, and they were very much heard. Uh, they had political parties uh, in the previous election uh, very much carrying those messages uh, in, in, and you know, presenting them to Canadians as part of the options that Canadians had to choose in that previous election. So um, people were well aware of the opinions and concerns and perspective of uh, those individuals. Well, I know that the phrase the Prince of Lies is sometimes a nickname of the devil himself, but I, I think if you take those words just at their literal meaning, I think Justin Trudeau is the Prince of Lies. You had other lies, liars serving him over the last few days, Marco Mendocino, David Lametti, and Christian Freeland, but of course the master of lies is Trudeau himself. And I, I say that not as an insult, I say that as a description. Um, I think he's a sociopath. And I think that was on display today. I think he holds on to false facts to keep his 
mindset together. He finds internal excuses for atrocious behavior if he can just hold on to a few false facts. Without further ado, let me bring onto the show my dear friend Sheila Gunn-Reed, our chief reporter, who has been live tweeting Trudeau's testimony all day and has isolated six video clips that we're going to talk about. Sheila, I probably started off a little bit too harsh there, calling him the Prince of Lies, but reviewing these six clips and the two documents, especially given that one of these documents was released an hour after Trudeau started testifying and it was deliberately done that late so that the lawyers didn't have a chance to cross-examine him on it. He, that is the move of a liar. They've had nine months to prepare for this commission of inquiry. They knew it was coming. Nine months, and they gave this document an hour after Trudeau started talking. That is the move of a prince of lies. First of all, Tre Sheila, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. I'm doing my best not to be stupider after all of this, after listening to Justin Trudeau prattle on about so much of nothing sometimes. He knows that a lot of these lawyers who are who are cross-examining him. Sometimes they only have five minutes, sometimes they have 10 minutes. And so he's very clearly gone to the Kamala Harris School of Public Speaking, but saying nothing. Yeah. And he takes the long way around on everything. He's, as they say, ragging the puck yeah. to make sure they don't get an opportunity to ask him questions. It's so clear, yeah. um, it's ridiculous. Yeah, well, I mean, he doesn't have much time for the mere rule of law. How many times has he been convicted under the Conflict of Interest Act? He just laughs at it. Twice he lost to us in court when he tried to ban us from the leaders' debates, and twice he says, I still don't think you're real journalists, minutes after the courts say we are. He really doesn't care about the law. The law is for little people. Let's jump right in. This is an astonishing thing. Um, Trudeau sometimes says something and then, and then plays it back in his own head and said, that was a mistake. Like when he says China <laughs> is the country he most admires. If you look at the full clip, he, he says that for a while, then he says, because he says that basic dictatorship can move quickly. And he says, um, yeah, and Harper would like that kind of power. Like he says what he really loves about China, and then he realizes how he must sound. This is that same sort of thing. He says, yep. well, I'll let you see it for yourself. Play clip number one. But in terms of uh, responding to their demands uh, or, or legitimizing them by engaging, I'm highlighting that I'm worried about setting a precedent uh, that a blockade on Wellington Street can, can lead to changing public policy. People need to be heard, uh, but we need to get that balance right. Uh, and then uh, she agreed that I need to be cautious and I don't want to set any bad precedents. Okay, so fairly self-explanatory. There's, there's a, a willingness to, to discuss, but you, you were concerned about setting a precedent where uh, a blockade could equal a, a, a change in public policy. Is that fair? Yeah, uh, I, mean, I think we we have uh, a robust functioning democracy, and uh, protests, public protests, are an important part of making sure we're getting messages out there, and Canadians are getting messages out there and highlighting how they feel about various issues. Uh, but using protests to demand uh, changes to public policy um, is something that that I think is 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 worrisome. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Although, Kurt. sorry, to a certain extent. No, no, extent, please go on. Yeah, you know, protests, if you're out protesting that the government is, you know, shutting down a, a safe injection site or something, you are asking for changes in, in public policy. But there is a difference between uh, occupations uh, and, and, you know, saying we're not going until this has changed uh, in a way that is massively disruptive. Uh, and potentially dangerous uh, versus just saying, yeah, we're protesting because we want uh, we want 
public policy to change, and we're trying to convince people to get enough of them that politicians will listen to enough people saying, okay, uh, I'm going to lose votes if I don't change this. Uh, that's the usual way uh, protests uh, uh, can be effective in, in our democracies. So you can't be disruptive, Sheila. So, for example, you couldn't have a strike at a factory because that would be disruptive. You certainly couldn't block a railway track as they were blocked in Canada for months a few years back. And by the way, Trudeau sent negotiators to meet with them. You couldn't block traffic like, you know, climate existence rebellion. You couldn't, um, like his own cabinet minister, Stephen Gilbo, you couldn't break in to the CN Tower and rappel down or whatever um, Gilbo did. You couldn't really do any of the anti-logging, anti-mining, anti-oil things that his liberal friends do. The one thing he can think of that you are allowed to do is support drug injection sites for Canadians. Um, I think Trudeau did that same thing he did with his China quote. He showed his true self and said, hang on, there's a little you know, chimpanzee in his head clanging symbols together that's good, <laughs> boss, boss, you made a boo-boo. And then he said, oh, shoot, that's right. I said something crazy there. And he tried to fix it. Yeah, you know, he, there's a lot of that happening today where he says something and then he realizes it's stupid. And then he set, tries to fix it and then makes it worse. Because what, what he did there was um, he said, basically, if you read between the lines, the things he says you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to protest, he's basically saying conservatives are not allowed to protest for conservative causes. But if this is left wing um, virtue signaling causes, for example, allowing people to continue to inject themselves with poison until they ultimately reach a, an untimely death that's fine. You can do those sorts of things. It's conservatives or, you know, people who just want to go back about their lives who are protesting me and disrupting me. That's the real problem. here. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly right. Disrupt the oil patch. He hates the oil patch anyways. He wants to shut it down. Uh, but disrupt, disrupt him and his friends in Ottawa, of all places. How dare you come to our pristine capital city? Have your disruptive protests out there in the colonies, but don't come to uh, King's Landing. This is a holy territory, don't you know? Now, clip number two shows that from a very early moment, he was thinking of going full martial law. It, it sounds like he was talking about or thinking about martial law before things even got disruptive. He just hated the sight of truckers and oilmen and Westerners and independent people. He hated them so much. His first move was, well, martial law, that's what my dad did. Take a look. Et cetera. And I'm wondering if you can describe, if someone asked you, um, when did the Emergencies Act come into play as a possibility? Uh, how would you answer that? Oh, as, as an idea, um, it would have been from the very beginning, in the back of our minds, is you see a situation that um, is an emergency, is out of control, is has a potential for real impact on citizens, potential for violence, uh, real concerns about what's going on, not just in Ottawa, but right across the country. Uh, the Coots blockade that started up uh, on the same first weekend uh, that the Ottawa uh, occupation did. These are the things that um, you say, okay, as we look at a whole range of potential outcomes in this, there might be a moment where we have to invoke the Emergencies Act. 
Yeah, if he was talking about this from the very early moment, it wasn't because there was violence or danger. There never was any violence. No. It wasn't even because of disruption. It was just he hated the sight of working class, Western, hardworking, blue collar folks getting a little uppity. And how dare you? Um, Protests are for college leftists. Protests are for uh, Peter Pan men who never grow up like um, Stephen Gilbo. Protests aren't for working men. Know your place. Deliver me my stuff. Deliver me my Amazon package or my DoorDash mail. Working men, you're a delivery boy. Know your place, delivery mm-hmm. boy. That's, that's why he thought of going to martial law right from the beginning. I, I don't think, like Black Lives Matter, that actually was disruptive. It rioted in a dozen American sure. cities. I don't know more, shut down train tracks. Those actually were disruptive. He never for a second thought of martial law in those cases because those were his allies and friends. He actually said, I've never considered it. I've never considered invoking it on indigenous-led protests. He said that. He testified to that today. And we know that he's not even doing one of his usual Trudeau exaggerations here when he says that they considered it from the very beginning. We know Bill Blair said to Global News that he considered it from the very beginning. David Lametti considered the Emergencies Act, we know, at least in text messages. And this is when he put it in writing. So obviously it was probably in his mind well before that. Um, about 36 hours into the arrival of the protest. They hadn't even got gotten through the whole weekend. And he was like, you know what? We should emergencies act these people. February 2nd, Lametti brought it up. And again, on February 4th. So these people aren't joking when they said this was something in our mind from the very beginning. And actually it came out in testimony today that Justin Trudeau said that they had even considered this for the pandemic. So they were considering emergencies acting the country because of the pandemic. And he said, oh, but we didn't. Oh, thanks for being so benevolent for not emergencies acting us for two and a half years straight. Um, But thank you for limiting it to just the time between you knew you were going to lose the time you invoked it and the time you knew you were going to lose the Senate vote on it. Yeah, he really is a tyrant. He comes by that honestly. Um, You know, I just want to remind people of uh, the violence that there was in Ottawa because there was violence. I know that. Someone was shot. Uh, That someone was our reporter, Alexa Lavoie, who was shot in the leg with a riot weapon by the Ottawa police. Just use a reminder of that awful moment. One of the worst moments in our company's history. Take a look. Alexa was not the only person who was violently attacked. There was an elderly lady, I understand she was indigenous, who was stomped on by a riot horse. Here, take a quick look at that. Come on through. What is happening here? Wow. What is this lady doing? Traveling. Traveling horses. Traveling. Stop it. Stop it. Oh my God. They just trampled this lady. They just trampled that lady. They just fully trampled that lady. They just fully trampled that lady. The reason I show you those, both of them women, by the way, um, 
an elderly woman stomped on by the horse is apropos of clip number three that we have for you of Justin Trudeau showing how much he cares about women. Take a look. When there's a national emergency and serious threats of violence to Canadians and you have a tool that you should use, how would I explain it to the family of a police officer who was killed or a, a, a grandmother who got run over stopping, trying to stop a truck or, uh, or a, a protester who was killed? Uh, if I hadn't used the tools, if uh, one of the protesters, uh, one of the occupiers had been, uh, had been killed uh, in uh, a violent clash with someone else, um, getting this situation under control and protecting the safety of all Canadians is a priority. Except for the Emergencies Act doesn't talk about potential threat to promise right. in my own mind. It's an actual danger, an actual attack on the sovereignty of Canada, not in his own mind. And, and like I say, protesters were violated by the government. It is not sufficient under law or in common sense that you bring in martial law because you think your enemies are as evil as you project onto them. Yeah, there was a lot of, um, I would suggest, marijuana paranoia in Justin Trudeau's par in his testimony today because he used the word potential so many times that if you were playing a drinking game, um, you'd have been hammered by about 9, 9.45 this morning um, because it was, there's a potential for violence. There's a potential for this. There's a potential for that. There's no such thing as potential in the Emergencies Act text writing. That's not what the standard is here. It is, does it rise to the CSIS definition of national security threat? And CSIS testified it never did. Uh, there was a point at which Justin Trudeau was opining about weaponized vehicles. He said, you know, I really became concerned when the vehicles became weaponized. When did that ever happen? Well, the example he gave was when um, it, two cars got in a very minor fender bender down at the Coots border blockade. There were both protesters and there was a blockade and they sort of banged bumpers. And there was, you know, just people sort of yelling at each other because they had a car accident. But that was Justin Trudeau's um, definition of weaponized vehicles. Um, and Jason Kenney helped spread that lie. So that lie out there is part of the ether around the convoy because Jason Kenney said that a car tried to ram the blockade. Well, no, it was a fender bender. Mm -hmm. And now now we see our prime minister using that against peaceful protesters here in Alberta. Uh, that's clip number five. Play clip number five when Trudeau lists these threats. Uh, he, he talks about using children as human shields. He's projecting his own bizarre cruelty onto others. Um, he's, he's talking about cars ramming police officers in a second we'll show you how the rcmp clearly say that did not happen we'll play a clip of that but here take a look at trudeau the prince of lies threats of serious, serious violence okay. was the key ones and can you can you elaborate on on what those threats were what led to that conclusion yes. um and again, we went around the table with officials uh, from all different agencies and heads of departments uh, to talk about this. There was uh, the um, 
militarization of vehicles, for example. We'd seen, uh, sorry, weaponization of, of vehicles. We'd seen, uh, you know, cars ramming into police officers in, or, or other cars at Coots. Uh, we saw an incident like that in um, in uh, Surrey, I believe. Uh, we saw trucks uh, used as as uh, potential weapons, certainly in um, uh, in Ottawa, with their their presence and unknown uh, interiors. There was the use of uh, children as human shields, uh, deliberately, uh, which was uh, a real concern both at the Ambassador Bridge uh, and the fact that there were uh, kids on Wellington Street that people didn't know what was in the uh, in the trucks, whether it was kids, whether it was weapons, whether it was both. Police had no way of knowing uh, those. There was presence of weapons uh, at Coots, as we saw. There was a concern around weapons being stolen uh, in Peterborough uh, that we didn't know, about 2,000 guns that we didn't know where they had gone at that point. Uh, we later found out that they didn't go there, but there was that was a real concern uh, that we had about what was happening to them. Um, there were a number of others as well. Children were never used as human shields. That's the bizarre. No. This is what I mean about the, the sociopathic, like for him to keep his worldview together, he needs those things to be true. Here, just before I forget, here's our own reporters calling the RCMP and asking them to clarify if that slander that that some protester rammed an RCMP in Coots, that was that was the weaponization of vehicles, that was a lie told by Jason Kenney. We knew that, and we got the RCMP, incredibly, to admit it on tape. Here, take a quick look at that. Hey there. It's uh, George Sutton called Pony Back. Yep, thank you. Uh, so I can confirm that we disabled three, looks like three excavators. Yep. Um, to prevent the equipment from being used in the illegal activity of the blockade. Uh, was there an expectation there as to how they were going to be used? Uh, I don't, I'm not sure. I, I've got the answer for you. I'm not sure what other questions you might have with, relative to that. I wasn't part of that, uh, that planning or the execution of that. So yep. I don't think I can comment any further than that. Nope. It's all good. Really appreciate that. Thank you so much. No problem. Sid. Take care, buddy. Yep. Bye-bye. Hi there, it's Corporal Savinkoff here. Uh, hey there, Corporal. Uh, this is uh, Sid calling you again really quickly, um, if you have the time for a hey, second. Sid. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, so I just wanted to confirm um, exactly what the damage was done by the RCMP. The damage, the disabling? Yeah, yeah. So we, we, we can... Yep. Right. I don't know. I don't know what we did to disable those vehicles, Sid. Okay, but okay. Yeah, sorry. I I forgot to get that bit there uh, last time. But you did confirm that it was you guys. But um, in terms of the specific damage, you're unaware. Yeah, the specific uh, steps that we took to disable those vehicles. I don't. I don't know. Okay. All right. No, appreciate that. Just wanted to reconfirm. Thank you. All right. Take care. Yep. Bye. 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 So, uh, you know, I don't know if Justin Trudeau is selectively editing from his memory any countervailing facts. I think he hunts for a few things that can allow him to psychologically say, no, no, I'm, I'm telling the truth here. Um, even, even though every single thing he listed there was either false, a, uh, an exaggeration, or as you said, just a potential, a potential human shield he has to do, to say that and do that to keep his sociopathic love of tyranny alive. He justifies his tyranny with all these asterisks and stretches and exaggerations. You know, if there really was a national emergency, 
you wouldn't have to string it together with exaggerations. And we saw earlier in the Commission of Inquiry, cabinet ministers and other senior bureaucrats brainstorming how they can gin up a media narrative about this is mm -hmm. a danger, this is rioters, this is January 6th all over again, these are neo-Nazis. If there were a Nazi uprising, if there were a revolution, if there were a mass danger in Canada, you would know it. You would see it. You wouldn't have to uh, spin journalists and exaggerate the way Trudeau does. He knows he's a liar, but he's doing this so he can look himself in the mirror. You know, I think Justin Trudeau's statement there was rel revelatory of his own bigotry of what he thinks about blue collar people. Um, because he thinks that they are just violent, uncontrollable, uh, feral people, obviously. Because uh, at no point, at no point were the police ever really in control of the situation there. At every point where there was a protest or a blockade, the police were vastly outnumbered by people far more useful than they're normally exposed to in the city of Ottawa. These are not professional bureaucrats. These are the useful people that keep society going. Those are the people who went to Ottawa to protest. And at no point did they ever meet violence of the state with violence of their own. When they were being trampled, they didn't riot. When they were being snatched and grabbed, unlawfully confined, kidnapped, and taken outside of town and dumped with no cell phone, sometimes no jacket and no way back in minus 30. They never met violence with violence. They could have They could have taken over Ottawa 10 times over. They didn't. And there was something in there too that Justin Trudeau said about the trucks. And again, it speaks to his own bigotry about blue collar people and truck drivers in general. He said, the presence of unknown interiors. He knew that his potential speculation, marijuana, paranoia, it wasn't enough to get a judge to sign off on a warrant to say, can I search your truck? And, that, and so he was really just desperate mm -hmm. to get into the interior of those trucks and, and try his best to find guns. No guns were found in Ottawa, but he had himself convinced because he's such a bigot that those people were just armed to the teeth with weapons caches inside their trucks. And they would they sacrifice their own children. They would sacrifice yes. their own children because they're, they're the demonic ones, not him. Yeah. I want to play one more clip, and this is the thing you mentioned earlier. Like I say, the Emergencies Act, the form of martial law that succeeded the War Measures Act, it has built within it a requirement that within a certain period of time after the invocation of martial law, a commission of inquiry like this one be convened. So back in February, the entire world, including Justin Trudeau, knew what would happen. They would have to show their work. And of course, the commission of inquiry has been meeting for more than a month, and we, we knew it would for months before that. And yet it was at 10.26 a.m., an hour after Trudeau started testifying, that Trudeau and his staff thought they'd turn over for the first time, documents showing their, what was really happening. And I would like to play video number six, and then we'll show the documents thereafter. So here's Rob Kittridge, who we had on the show the other day, asking Trudeau some questions about that. Uh, could you identify on the other side what uh, information was blacked out as irrelevant by your government? Um, Americans offer, offering tow trucks. Yeah, and uh, wouldn't you say that uh, discussion of tow trucks was relevant to the discussion we're having here today? Uh, 
I'm not the one who made these redactions. Uh, it's the professional public service that made those redactions. So you'd have to ask them. Right. Well, I think we will be. But um, uh, in any event, uh, I would put it to you that tow trucks weren't, in fact, required, uh, that the power to compel tow trucks was not used for anything other than convenience, and uh, that tow trucks had been secured at all important locations prior to the invocation of the Emergencies Act. And I, I got to say, it's, uh, uh, it's interesting to close on this tow truck point. I hadn't expected that to happen. But uh, would you agree with me that tow trucks weren't, in fact, needed? at the time of the invocation of the act? No, Mr. I, Commissioner, no, Brian not. Gover for the Government of Canada. And uh, if my friend is going to put that to the witness, he ought to put the proposition correctly. I remind my friend that uh, the evidence of Commissioner Karik of the uh, Ontario Provincial Police was that the powers under the emergency measures regulation in relation to tow trucks were used. I refer specifically to his February 22nd 2022 report to Deputy Solicitor General Di Tommaso, which shows that clearly those powers were used. Thank you. Right. Well, I would respond by saying that the uh, the evidence so far has shown that uh, that that the, while the while strictly speaking there was an invocation of or there was a use of that power under the Act uh, by the OPP, it was basically used as a method to ensure okay, that the payment right. was it, made. It's, it's it's In supposed to come to me, and I think those happen to be areas that I'm going to have to deal with uh, what is, in fact, uh, the case. But you can pose your question in a different way if you wish. But I think whether or not they were used, whether or not it was required, is something I will I think I, I think we're burying the lead a little bit here. And uh, I'll ask you again. Uh, you would agree that a discussion of tow trucks and information about tow trucks is relevant to the duck, to the work of the commission and the uh, discussion that we're having here today, wouldn't you? I know there was a lot of time spent on tow trucks during the past six weeks. Right. Well, thank you very much. I'm not impressed with that uh, cross-examination. The lawyers were, uh, you know, I, we had Rob on the show the other day. I enjoyed talking with him. But I think when you have Justin Trudeau in the witness box, you put questions to him and try and get him to say things. You can add your commentary later. And the lawyers bantering, Justin Trudeau was smiling like the cat that ate the canary while the lawyers bickered and bantered. I, I wasn't uh, impressed with that. But I do want to show one more document, Sheila. And it's uh, a readout of the phone call between Trudeau and Yasser Nakvi. Because yeah. um, there's, uh, there's reference to a criticism of... Trudeau, and I'm not sure if we can see it there, but Nakvi says this, the protest was dire. I didn't know that there was such mm. a thing as a dire protest. I don't know exactly what that means. And this is the first weekend, by the way. Yeah. These people are already losing their minds on like 18 hours into the protest. I was there the first weekend, and the, and I really, when I arrived in the downtown, I felt like I was coming into a city that had like a Stanley Cup final. Like yeah. people with flags and honking and lights. And I really felt like, I mean, I have been in cities where a great sporting victory has happened and people pour out in the streets and just woo. And like if I thought, you know, I, I mean, I knew what I was there for, but it really felt indistinguishable from like a city with a great cup victory. And the flags and the joy and the Canadian flags and, and people were singing Oh Canada and and there was a celebration feeling there and there was young guys who were excited but there were families too to call that dire 
I think that's like an inkblot test where this guy's projecting a bit. And, um, but here's the key line. This is what I think made it so dire. Nakvi mm-hmm. says, I don't know if it was true, that there was a life-sized poster on a truck of Hitler with your name on it. Wow. How does it feel when somebody calls you a Nazi? Don't and, like it? Yeah. yeah, that's how the convoy felt. How do you like that? So I think what that means, and it goes back to the very first clip we played of Trudeau. Some protests he likes. Yeah. Some protests he doesn't. Some protests are allowed to change public policy. Others aren't. And about using the word Hitler or the word Nazi, Justin Trudeau is allowed to call working class yep. Canadians, conservatives, skeptics, he even calls us Nazis. His disgraced former advisor, Gerald Butts, called us Nazis. I'm Jewish, by the way. So you can say Nazi when you're criticizing a conservative, even though it's completely not true. But God forbid someone who calls the martial law imposer, the I most admire communist China for their basic dictatorship, God forbid you call the the sainted one, you call dear leader a Nazi. Well, that is a dire protest indeed. And we'd better bring in martial law to stop those proles from getting the wrong idea. Their protest is too dire, Sheila. And you're allowed to call people Nazis, but you're only allowed to call the little people and conservatives Nazis. Never call Trudeau a Nazi or he'll invoke martial law. Don't you know the rules? You know, Ezra, I used to think that the concept of white male fragility was just a leftist thing. Like, Mm -hmm. I just thought that that was just a leftist thing that they leveled at conservatives all the time. But I'm witnessing it firsthand here from Justin Trudeau. He was fine to call people all those names. And the second he turned, it was turned back on him, his ego was so fragile he couldn't handle it, and he used the most extraordinary powers of the state to silence them. Mm-hmm. Incredible. Well, Sheila, thank you for covering this, not just today, but you have been one of our lead reporters on this subject. William diaz Berthiom has been on the ground running to talk to the reporters. He's done a great job, but you have lifted the heaviest load with the live tweeting and the commentary and then the nightly uh, live streams. Thank you so much for that. I'm very proud of the whole team effort because I think if you add up all the different people on the Rebel News team who worked for the truckercommission.com, that's our website, truckercommission.com. We had the Airbnb in Ottawa. We had the reporters on the scene. We had people cutting video clips all day, tweeting all the day. live stream. I yeah. think that probably 20 different people in our Easily. company had a hand in it in some way. And thank you for being the lead reporter on it and uh, running the live stream and tweeting about it. I think we did it justice. I think that the commission itself achieved more than I thought it would. I think generally the judge was good, I think. We'll Mm -hmm. see what what his rulings and his findings are. I think the Justice Center lawyers did a great job. Brendan Miller, I think, sort of fell apart at the end. He got a little, I think he was just exhausted, frankly, and probably sleep deprived. And I think he made some mistakes in the in the very end there. But I don't think he was active today, was he? The the JCCF. Not yet. Yeah, I think they took him off the off the roster. But I think that I think he still was a, a great lawyer throughout. And the and the JCCF lawyers and Alan Honor, the Democracy Fund, I think they did great. Without those freedom lawyers, 
the trucker lawyers, the JCCF lawyers, the democracy fund lawyers, this would have been a very different thing, wouldn't it? It, it would have been. Um, and special thanks to Keith Wilson and Eva Chipiak from um, the convoy, the, the convoy lawyers. They were the two that were on the ground mm -hmm. um, working to keep the convoy from um, getting just the full Justin Trudeau, uh, my favorite dictatorship treatment. And they've been so generous with their time on our live streams, giving us the appropriate legal analysis instead of the CBC, maybe it was Russians analysis yeah. that the mainstream media is providing to everybody. But I, I, I truly believe that our work on the Trucker Commission is simply an extension of the work that we started back in January and February. People looked to us back then to tell the other side of the story. And in this instance, the other side of the story is the full truth. Mm -hmm. Um to show what was accurately happening on the ground. And we are continuing to do that by showing what's accurately happening in that commission room in Ottawa. It's a big job, but I think uh, Canadians deserve it. Yeah. And you know, I feel like Rebel News and other independent journalists, citizen journalists, Viva Fry, for example, the lawyer yep. vlogger from Montreal, he did a great job in the trucker commission, in, sorry, in the trucker convoy itself back in February. Yep. And I think independent citizen journalists won the battle of ideas in February. And this trucker commission was when the empire was going to strike back, when they were going to try and revise history. And I think that they failed largely. I think that that was in part because the commission actually had the power to subpoena documents and compel testimony. I don't know about compel testimony, but certainly subpoena people's appearance. And I don't think they got away with it. I mean, of course, the regime media, every day I pick up the Toronto Star, I can't even believe, am I in the same planet as these people? Right. Did you just see what I saw? But again, I think that Rebel News and other independent media have such an important audience now, and they know you just can't trust the government media. And I, and I think that Rachel Gilmore, the TikTok girl from Global, and Glenn McGregor from CTV, I think they've so disgraced themselves that... You know, sure, they do have their, you know, uh, legacy audience that's just with them for pure inertia and out of habit. But really, I think the trucker convoy and covering this commission, it was rebel news that dominated and that gave people, as our motto says, the other side of the story. I'm very proud of our whole team. Sheila, thanks for that. And thanks for giving me half an hour of your time today. You got it. I've got to get back into the commission. I think the lawyer for Alberta is up right now. Okay, we'll let you go. There you have it. Sheila Gunn-Reed, our chief reporter, and we'll let her get back to it. As you know, we record the show a little bit earlier than we air it. So as we record it, the commission of inquiry is still proceeding. Stay with us. Your letters to me next. Hey, welcome back. Your letters to me. Tom Brose says, are you still optimistic about the Trucker Commission? After watching the judge today, either scared or unwilling to rule on the redacting issue, I certainly am not. It seems that he is scared to upset his political masters by ruling against him on this issue, which should have been done a long time ago in the interest of fairness. And if they care about that, way too much political BS with no accountability at the end. Total waste of time. Yeah, I, I, I don't share your view. I, I in no way say it's a perfect... Uh, process. But I think it was a more transparent hearing and commission than we've ever had. It was the most accountability Trudeau and his henchmen have ever had. And to see actual passionate, partisan, freedom-oriented lawyers have a chance to take a run at Trudeau is unprecedented. 
I agree with you that the government was playing games and they knew that they could because they knew they could run out the clock. So their testimony was verbose. They withheld documents. And as Sheila pointed out, one of the documents was released at 10.26 a.m. after Trudeau started testifying an hour earlier. So there's games for sure. Certainly not a perfect process, but I disagree with you. I'm actually optimistic in this process. And I'd be foolish to predict what the judge says, but I'm actually optimistic about him too. Meryl Michaelham says, Hi, Ezra. Trudeau's thespianism is like listening to a bedtime story, although I never felt nauseous as a kid when I heard a bedtime story. As for the alleged misidentification of the Nazi flag guy, it brings to mind the professor in the U.S. that cracked a young man's skull, Trump supporter with a lock in the sock. It was the computer nerds who searched unmasked facial recognition images from previous left-wing protests to match up with the perp who was arrested and convicted. If I am wrong, I apologize. Perhaps someone got a look and a pic of the Canadian version of Ray Epps. Perhaps there is something we have yet to see. As for Freeland, she is the epitome of where we are. I heard her gramps with the Ukrainian Nazi. That is an important road to be traveled. Cheers. Firstly, on Christia Freeland, it is not a matter of speculation. It is a matter of fact that Christia Freeland has belatedly acknowledged that her father actually was a Nazi, seized a Jewish newspaper, turned it into a Nazi propaganda machine. And, of course, I don't blame Christia Freeland for what her grandfather did before she was even born. But the fact that she hid that and that she herself has shown sympathies towards Stepan Bandera, uh, a Nazi, is deeply discouraging to me. As to your other points, I'm not willing to... Uh, I mean, listen, of course, I'm open to any facts, but so far, absolutely zero facts have been presented to say that Brian Fox is the Nazi flag guy. You saw Sean Folks, the guy who swore the affidavit. He met and spoke with a masked guy briefly in January, and then suddenly in November, he's so sure of it, but only from seeing a website photo. But remember the key thing that Sean Folks said when he talked about the Nazi guy back in, in February. The guy had a European accent. That's not Brian Fox. I think that Brendan Moore was so revved up and so desperate to get him that he sort of did ready, shoot, aim instead of ready, aim, fire. I think he got out of order there. And as someone who is falsely being called names before by the left, I don't think we should make that a habit uh, on our side. And I hope that Brendan Miller fixes that because I think he had generally an excellent month at the commission. Anyways, thanks for watching the show today, and thanks to Sheila for covering things so meticulously, and the rest of our team, Efron Monsanto, William diaz Berthium, Celine Glass, I'm not going to list everyone, Kean Simone, Sidney Fizard, so many of our team rotated through Ottawa. It was actually super fun to have that base camp there. I'm going to miss it when we shut it down. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, to you at home, good night, and keep fighting for freedom. With the Public Order Emergency Commission wrapping up this week, I thought it was the perfect time for me to present to you this story. For those of you that are unfamiliar with the Emergency Commission, this is an inquiry into the circumstances that led to the declaration of the Emergency Act that dismantled the truckers' convoy in Ottawa. Jaskinwal Singh attended the truckers' convoy with his friends to stand in solidarity with his fellow Canadians who were protesting COVID mandates at the time. Unfortunately, just like many other Canadians, Jaskinwal was on the receiving end of heavy police force on the final days of the convoy, which ultimately led to his arrest. 
Now I'm gonna show you the footage from the incident. There's a lot going on, but if you look closely, you can see Jaskinwalt, who is the man with the orange turban and orange flag, be pulled behind the police line. Check out the footage. Don't resist, guys. Don't resist. Come on, don't resist. Back up, back up. Oh, look at this guy. Look at this guy. Yeah. Don't resist! Don't resist! Don't resist! Come on, guys! Come on! Like I said, there's a lot going on in the video. It's hard to make out what exactly is happening. That's why I caught up with Jaskin Wall in Toronto where he shared with me his side of the story and what exactly happened that day. My name is Jaskin Wall Singh. I'm 32 years old and I'm from Toronto. A little bit about me, I have a legal background. I went to the University of Ottawa for law school. Before that, I went to York University for criminology. I have a passion for upholding human rights and for speaking the truth and also finding out the truth in life, in all areas of life. The last few years have definitely been confusing for many people. My friends and I did see on social media, the way the protest was going was far different than what mainstream media was showing. The last few years was confusing for people in terms of the pandemic, the lockdowns, mandates, the social isolation, job losses, access to society. And we wanted to go see what was going on with the protesters in Ottawa and to see their version of events and see what was going on there. We were there in Ottawa in the spirit of democracy, civil discourse, and just coming to an understanding of what was going on politically, economically, and socially. Coming from an immigrant background, my parents, they are immigrants who came from India. So coming from that background, they sacrificed a lot when they came to Canada. They worked hard. A lot of Sikhs were Canadian soldiers who sacrificed for this country. So through blue collar jobs, through the world wars, there was a lot of sacrifices that Sikhs made. And in honor of that, we wanted to do our best to understand what was going on in this country because it's important for us to honor those sacrifices, not just from the Sikh background, but from all backgrounds in Canada who have defended our rights and freedoms and who have made Canada the place it is today. So because of that, we also found it important to be there. The protest was vilified and the protesters were maligned by politicians who called them extremist, racist, misogynistic. And my friends and I drew parallels to other countries where the governments and media would do the same thing. For example, for Sikhs back home who fight for their human rights in relation to things such as the farmers' protest, they were called Khalistani extremists. So we saw a parallel where whenever a protest was happening, whenever there were citizens that wanted to voice their concerns, the first thing the media and the government would do is to malign them and stigmatize them so the public would dismiss the validity of their concerns. We saw it important, really important, to, for us to find out the truth and for us to see what was going on and to hear the concerns of protesters and to voice our own concerns. In Sikhi, it is crucial for Sangat to come together. Sangat is the gathering of people, the gathering of spiritually aligned people to focus on spiritual values, principles of life, and to come together as one. This was hard to do during the lockdowns, during the pandemic, as people were socially isolated. It's important that we remain vigilant as Sikhs 
of our social, legal, and political structures because inevitably they have an impact upon us. They have an impact upon the ways we perceive the reality that we're in, the ways in which we interact with others, and the ways in which we can access our social institutions and even religious institutions that were also impacted during the lockdowns. Contrary to what the media was showing, when we arrived in Ottawa, there was nothing but love, peace, compassion, and unity. People were there to voice their concerns, and for the first time, they had people who were listening to their stories, albeit that they were fellow Canadians and not the politicians who were sworn to protect us and to listen to Canadian concerns. The atmosphere there meant that there was a place of unity and understanding where people felt heard and people felt as if there was a place that they could heal, a place where they weren't judged for what they believed and a place where people voiced what made them passionate to come to Ottawa from all over the country. Whether this was because politicians were being hypocritical of the policies they set out and were going against safety guidelines that they told the citizens to follow, or whether people had individual concerns over how the jabs might have impacted people they knew. On the day of my arrest, which was February 19, 2022, a few hours before my arrest, my friends and I were being peaceful with the police. We were talking to them, engaging with them in democratic dialogue. There was a Toronto police officer who fist bumped me. There were my friends who were giving snacks to police officers, a few friends of mine who were hugging the police officer, one police officer in particular, and being there in the spirit of Sikhi, of spirituality, of love, of oneness, coming to an understanding. That's what protest is about. That's what peaceful protest is about. And that's what we were engaging in. As cops would move forward, everyone would be backing up. This became routine. Every 20 minutes or so, the cops would march forward and there's various police forces that were together. They would march forward, we would march backwards. A certain group of officers who were unnamed, no badge number, wearing olive green, they were more aggressive. And as we were backing up, one of them lunged forward out of nowhere. Even though I was backing up, my Nishansa, which is a religious Sikh flag, it was slung over my shoulder, pointing backwards, not towards them. As I was backing up, even turning away from them to leave, one of them lunged forward and grabbed the flag from my hands. As I was holding it, I was yanked forward. So I was pushed or pulled rather, yanked. And I was holding onto the flag. And as soon as I got yanked forward into the police ranks, I was attacked from multiple angles by multiple police officers. I was thrown to the ground. I fell face first, hitting my head. Police officers ganged up on me, kneed me in my back need me in my ribs, punch me in my face. My turban was ripped off, but also a kanga, which is a wooden comb that's in my turban. That was also thrown to the ground. The religious flag was thrown to the ground. My kirpan, which is another symbol of faith, that was cut off me without any indication of how to treat it, without me being asked how to handle any of these religious symbols of faith and articles of faith. As I was laying on the floor, not resisting, being attacked, a police officer had their knee dug deep into my back. Multiple officers were on top of me, still hitting me. And as I was handcuffed, I wasn't even told my rights. I wasn't told I was under arrest. I was on the ground for four minutes. There was a lady that even yelled out, as you can see from a protester video, how long are you going to keep him on the floor? I couldn't breathe. After a certain while, it's minus 40 with wind chill. I have asthma. The cops are still putting immense pressure on my back. I screamed out that I can't breathe. 
And the response was, well, if you can talk, you can breathe, buddy. And yeah, sure, bud. I was disgraced. I was humiliated. I was um, robbed of my Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. I sustained injuries. There was cuts and bruises and lacerations on my face and my back. I had an MRI which revealed disc damage. I'm still not able to go back to my normal physical activities. I had knee injuries that were sustained afterwards too. After being taken to a police cruiser and put into a police van where there was multiple protesters fit into a van, we were not taken to an actual police station but a temporary type of station that they must have made for the protesters. We were just taken there, we were not told where. Once we were released, it was cold, it was freezing. I saw Joe Walsh, she was arrested and released. I went over to her, I asked her if she needed a ride. I told her, you know, I'll make sure she gets home safe. We were just released out in the cold. There's videos that my friends made where after I was taken away, they were asking for the Nishansa back. It was thrown to the floor and left on the floor. They dropped the Nishan side. They dropped the Kanta on the ground. They fully well know it's on the ground. That's their religious flag and they will not give it back to us. My friends were not given it. In fact, it was not even picked up and put upright. It was left laying on the floor where people could walk all over it, trample all over it. Despite the fact there were dozens and dozens of cops, free, idly walking by, my friends were told they weren't free and they weren't able to currently give the flag back. Everybody's tied up. We can't get your flag. This is a busy spot. Look at look where you are right now. If I didn't have a working phone, uh, I wouldn't have been able to ping my friends and send them the pin of where I was. So I was charged with public mischief, resisting arrest and disobeying a lawful order. I'm currently still awaiting full disclosure. There was a CCTV camera at the intersection of Bank Street and Wellington Street. That's where the unlawful arrest took place. I still am awaiting that disclosure and footage. I haven't received that from the city. They are withholding that still. My lawyer has advised me that they're putting forth a deal where if I plead guilty, I can receive a discharge. That will work in my favor in terms of I'm actually, as I mentioned earlier, a graduate of the Law School of Ottawa. My license from the Law Society of Ontario, even though my requirements are fulfilled, that license is pending until this investigation and this case is cleared up. So because of the protest, because of the unlawful arrest, because of the Emergencies Act and the way it was unlawfully used, the way in which the police officers took advantage and unlawfully arbitrarily arrested and beat me, I'm now suffering from a career perspective because I can't practice law. My license is not being given out yet. The Law Society is withholding that until this is all cleared up. And I can take that plea for a guilty plea, but it goes against my conscience to plead guilty, to have a discharge, even though it will clear me on my record and the Law Society will admit me for being a lawyer. If I take that discharge, it goes against my conscience to plead guilty and to speak a lie of such a degree into the universe where I know in my heart, I was just practicing my legal rights. The cops unlawfully arrested and beat me and there's nothing for me to be guilty about. To the political leaders, to the police involved, you guys have taken and sworn a public oath, a duty to Canadian citizens to listen to our concerns, to fight for Canadian rights, to uphold the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. At every turn, you failed to listen to protesters. You failed to listen to Canadians. You failed to take into consideration what people want, what people are voicing. You failed to take into consideration the mental health issues, the social isolation, the inability to access society for many people based on a private medical decision. By now, I think it's clear there's more going on behind the scenes that you would care to admit, but my hope is that you can find any sense of your conscience that is still left to pay 
back all the hurt and pain and suffering and trauma that you have induced upon the Canadian population and that you will continue to do so if you don't own up and be accountable for everything that you have done for the last few years. When one is initiated as a Khalsa, which is an initiated Sikh that is committed to a spiritual path of following the Guru's teachings, defend humanity, the very first thing they are asked is whether this was a decision that is free, a decision that is informed, a decision that is not dealing with undue pressure, blackmail, force, or anything that would take away from a clear conscience. This is something that should be done with moral courage. This is something that should be done with a free mind. So the principles of Sikhi go against coercion. They go against compromising one's ability to make a decision with a free conscience. Informed consent is huge. Consent is huge when it comes to matters, especially when it comes to matters that are of private concern, medically or spiritually. So this is something that we must uphold. This is something that I, as an initiated Sikh, uphold. And these principles are not just principles for Sikhi, but for humanity. In my faith, religious symbols of our faith and religious articles of faith are treated with the utmost respect. The fact that the cops unlawfully grabbed me, threw me down and arrested me while disrespecting the sanctity of these articles of faith meant that I couldn't give them the proper respect that I wanted to. I want to apologize to my fellow Sikhs for not being able to do so. In many ways, my respect for Canadian democracy and the rights we have, it tied in with my journey back towards my faith a few years ago. I started wearing my turban again a few years ago, even though I cut my hair when I was 10 and I stopped wearing a turban back then. And that led me down a path of confusion where I wasn't able to balance my identities as both a Canadian and as a Sikh. But finding that passion, finding the love for democracy, the love for Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, I handled both those identities by going forward with both the conviction of a Sikh and the passion of a Canadian to help our Canadian society. But when my turban was ripped off and I was laying there on the floor, I was not able to comprehend just how brutal this attack was on both my identity as a Sikh and as a Canadian. I was there to defend the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms and celebrate the fact that I could do so as a turban-wearing Sikh. But the government showed that they were willing to trample upon religious rights, protest rights, and so much more in the name of maintaining whatever power and stranglehold they want over Canadian society. Thanks so much for watching, guys. If you want to stay up to date with all of our coverage from the Public Order Emergency Commission, you can head on over to our website at truckercommission.com. If you appreciate the coverage that we're bringing you, consider making a donation through that same website. Thanks, guys. Thank you.